so I come with a little bit of, uh, I have a confession to make, okay? Uh, I was nervous when Craig asked me to speak today as part of your vision series. Uh, as a guest speaker, when you get asked to speak on the vision of the church, uh, that's a tough one. And then he said, your passage of scripture is Nehemiah chapter 5. And uh, let me just give you an example of some of what I felt uh, before coming to preach uh, but it felt like I saw this lovely picture of the bridge, you know, this is the vision, we're going somewhere. And it reminded me of these two bridges in China that are glass bridges. I don't know if you've seen the pictures of them. Incredible. Uh, and I don't know, another confession, I hate heights. I, uh, I, I'm nervous of heights. I don't enjoy them. So to walk on a glass bridge uh, with many meters below, I, I, only, I was in Victoria Falls in December with my family. And uh, my son said, Joe, uh, he wanted to do the, um, the zip line, but he said he would only do it if I did it with him to go in tandem. I said, oh, no. I said, Joe, can't you just do the flying fox like your sister? He says, no, Dad, I want to do the zip line, but I'm only going to do it if you do it. So being the brave, courageous, not dad that I am, uh, I did the zip line with him, and I was so terrified of the zip line. Anyway, this bridge. Uh, Preaching to you this morning on your vision for the church and getting a vision from God is like walking across this glass bridge in China and you're looking down and feeling a bit nervous and your legs are all a bit wobbly, but you've got this beautiful surrounding and I've got to help to take you to the mountain or across this gorge uh, to get to. And this may be what it feels like for you this morning as I preach from Nehemiah chapter 5 and to help give you a vision of something that Nehemiah saw. We all have walls that we see that have crumbled down in our nation, in our lives and God gives us this vision like he did to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah got news that the walls were down I don't know if you've heard news or you've seen it yourself that there are some walls that are down. Nehemiah's first response is compassion and heartbrokenness for the people where the walls are broken down. And then he prays. And after praying, he sets about working out how am I going to get there to help rebuild this. And before the king... He comes before the king in a way that you can be killed for coming before the king in that way. Around the king, you're meant to be happy and smiley and everything is good. I wonder if that's the case for many of us in life, is that we just walk through life and people ask, how are you? And uh, say, fine, everything's good. Yeah, the optimists. Yet deep down, some walls have broken down. But the king notices and he says, what's the deal, Nehemiah? What, what's going on for you? Now, Nehemiah is just a normal, average guy, okay? He's not the owner of his own business. He's not some priest or pastor or teacher. He's not like that. He's the guy who gets to drink the king's drink before the king does because most people want to kill the king and the way to kill the king is by poisoning his drink. So you're the guy who drink, Nehemiah's the guy, who gets to drink the king's drink and sees if he dies or not so that it's safe for the king. So he's your average guy. Not someone special, not someone high and mighty, not someone with any extra privileges or 
anything like that. He's just a normal guy, just like you and me. And then in chapter 2, Nehemiah goes to see the city. The king gives him resources at his request, and he goes to see the city, and he walks around the city and sees the destruction. He does it in the dead of night, and then chapter 3, the building begins. Chapter 4, we know all about chapter 4. I think you may have heard about it last week. There's opposition, external opposition. And chapter 6 is also about external opposition. But chapter 5 is all about internal opposition and struggles. I heard a story of some kids playing in outside with their friends gathered around at home and... Uh, they were uh, shouting at one another, don't do that, and don't do that, what are you doing? So just playing a game, shouting at one another, and dad comes out in the garden, dad's a pastor, and says, guys, is everything okay, what are you doing? Oh, dad, we're playing church. <laughs> Internal opposition, I wonder if that's what it's like for a lot of us. Now, the walls around the city are representative of the walls around the family of God. And we're believers together. Now, I want you to picture this. If a wall is down in one area of God's family, trust me, the enemy is going to attack there. And no matter how big you build your wall next to your house, the enemy is still going to come in and you are under fire. And so the message today is a title that I'm nervous to give you. But let me start by saying the central passage of Scripture in Nehemiah. What strikes me the most is Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18. And I told them, so I prayed, Lord, what verse would you give me to open this morning with? And it was Nehemiah 2, 18. God said to me, tell them what the hand of God has done for you, how his hand has been upon you for your good, and also of the words of the king, King Jesus, and what he tells you to speak to them. And so I went to God and I said, please give me the words to speak to Harvest Church this morning and to tell you of the good God has done, and I'm hoping your response will be the same as theirs. And they said, I hope you will say, let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work that was ahead to accomplish the vision of God. That's the central theme, I believe, of Nehemiah. Is Nehemiah telling the people of what God is doing and his hand upon them and what God has done? And the people responding, let's strengthen our hands for this. So the title of the message this morning is Stop Oppressing the Poor. You might think, how can he bring us a message about stop oppressing the poor? I've never oppressed the poor. Is that the vision message you've got for us today? That's what I believe God called me to say this morning. Speak to them about stop oppressing the poor. Well, what's oppression? It's a situation in which people are governed in an unfair and cruel way and prevented from having opportunities and freedom. Sound familiar? Every human being has the right to freedom from oppression. Now, some of us may not um, 
hold to the Bible as our primary source, and we sometimes like others and their quotes, so I thought I'd give you some quotes from people about oppression and what their view on it is. Albert Einstein says, the world is a dangerous place, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. Thomas Jefferson says, all tyranny needs to gain a foothold. All that it needs to gain a foothold is for people of good conscience to remain silent. He who does not oppose evil commands it to be done. And Plato, that's Leonardo da Vinci. And Plato says, your silence is consent. You ask the question, how do we oppress the poor? It's often by our silence. Jeanette Sagan says, I don't know who that is, by the way. Silence in the face of injustice is complicity with the oppressor. And then Desmond Tutu, I love Desmond Tutu. He says, if you're neutral in situations of injustice, you've chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse, just imagine that. And you say you're neutral. The mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. <laughs> Dietrich Bonhoeffer, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Can you see why I showed you the video in the first place of my nervousness to come before you and perhaps your nervousness to receive a message of this nature? Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 1. Let's read together. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives. It's interesting that he noted, and their wives. Uh, you may know, uh, Old Testament, that wives must keep quiet and have their headdressing over them and only speak through their husbands. So you kind of get the picture here that the situation's really bad. If the wives are speaking out, the situation is bad. Because there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Oh, this is family now. Okay. For, verse 2, there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. They were hungry. There wasn't food. Verse 3, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields even, our vineyards and our houses just to get food because of the famine. So there was a famine. And there were those who also said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax. Taxes were high. The king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. We're family. And our children as their children. We're family. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Enslaved by our own family members. This was the nature of oppression. But it is not. Yet we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it. We are powerless. 
For other men have our fields and our vineyards. These are the four scenarios there. Three groups of people, four scenarios. There was hunger. This was the oppression in Nehemiah 5. Hunger, a lack of adequate food. There was a drought. They were mortgaging their fields for short-term cash to pay taxes and buy food. Know anybody who needs to do that? The nature of poverty was so dire. I meet people regularly who are going through the same stuff to get a meal a day for their families in Zimbabwe. This is not just separate from us and a nice situation in Nehemiah. We're learning from it because it's applicable to our situation here today. Let's not be silent or blind to the needs of the people. Loss of their fields because of an inability to repay what they had borrowed. Chikweret. It's the number one issue we have in Zimbabwe. But it's founded in other issues. And the other issues are oppression in various ways. And the selling of our sons and daughters into service or outright slavery for the sake of survival. To survive, we have to sell them. I've seen this on a regular basis in our nation. The sadness of a young girl 15, 16, 10, 12, in Epworth having to sell herself, her body, into prostitution to get a meal. Does that not rip at your heart? Does it? Or would we rather turn a blind eye because it's too painful and that's their situation, not mine. I've got enough trouble of my own. I've got taxes and bills to pay. Don't talk to me about somebody else's problems because I've got my own. Remember, if the wall is down, even in one part of the city, the family of God, we can get attacked from any angle. And no matter how high your wall and secure your property, the enemy will come in through the weakest point. We have some weak points around us. Moving on, it's a sober message. The big problem is selfishness and greed. That's our ultimate problem is our selfishness, our thinking of ourselves before others. That's why Satan fell from heaven because he wanted to be like God. It's the root cause of all other problems. Thou shalt have no other gods but me, God says. And selfishness, making ourselves God, ourselves first, our own needs first, is the ultimate idolatry. And every other sins come from that sin of selfishness or idolatry, as it were. It's the foundation of all other sins because we put ourselves before God. And then greed. Because we're selfish, we become greedy. And we become victims because we say, I don't have enough. What was done to me took away from me, therefore I need to get back. And we have this entitlement mentality that says we deserve far more than we have. Jesus is the only one that I can present to you to fix the problem of a victim mentality. I'm a victim because all this stuff was done to me or the entitlement mentality. I deserve far more than I have because Jesus became the ultimate victim as the perfect one who died in our place for our sins as the righteous one. He became the victim. And then entitlement gets fixed because Jesus gives us everything we don't deserve. 
you woke up this morning. You don't deserve to wake up this morning. You and me deserve hell and eternal damnation and separation from God because of our sin. We don't deserve anything good. You don't deserve the clothes on, the back, on your back, the car you drive, and many would say, but I've earned that. My hard work, the sweat on my back, I earned these clothes. Rubbish. It's a lie that you have believed because God owns everything. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the people and all who dwell therein. Your very breath belongs to God. Your sight belongs to God. You deserve Nothing plus eternal damnation, separation from God, burning in the fire of hell for the rest of your lives. But Jesus died in your place for your sins that you might have everything you don't deserve because of him, not you. Beware selfishness and greed because it just leads to poverty and slavery. Oppression at its core is about keeping power, social, financial, political, whatever, with the groups that the power is already associated with and denying it to the groups of people without that power. That's what oppression is. Inequality is oppression. Verse 6, Nehemiah's response, I was very angry. Now, Nehemiah's a better guy than me because he... It says in verse 7, uh, verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, so I took counsel with myself. Activists, be careful. Take counsel with yourself before you start spewing words of anger against the situation. Frank, Frankie Schaefer, I don't know why they put a Y on everybody's names. I hate being called Shawnee, by the way. But Frankie, that is Francis's son. Frankie Schaefer wrote a book called A Time for Anger. Don't you dare call me Shawnee, all right? <laughs> a time for anger, the myth of neutrality. In his introduction, he says this, There are times in which anyone with a shred of moral principle should be profoundly angry. We live in such times. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. If you're not angry, you haven't seen the issues that are there. Maybe you've turned a blind eye. Shane Claiborne wrote a book called The Irresistible Revolution, and he quotes a Danish pastor who was killed in Gestapo in 1944, who says, what is therefore our task today? What's your task today? Shall I answer faith, hope, and love? That sounds beautiful, but I would say courage. No, even that is not challenging enough to be the whole truth. Our task today is recklessness. For what we Christians lack is not psychology or literature. We lack a holy rage. The recklessness which comes from the knowledge of God and humanity. The ability to rage when justice lies prostrate on the streets. And when the lie rages across the face of the earth, a holy anger about the things that are wrong in the world. To rage when little children must die of hunger. When the tables of the rich are sagging with food. To rage at the senseless killing of so many and against the madness of militaries. To rage at the lie that calls the threat of death and the strategy of destruction peace. 
to rage against complacency, to restlessly seek that recklessness that will challenge and seek to change human history until it conforms to the norms of the kingdom of God. Wow. Are you ready to be reckless with a holy rage after having seen a picture, a vision of God on earth to see the walls rebuilt where they've crumbled down in society? I would put to you that oppression of the poor particularly is an area where the walls have fallen down in our nation and perhaps we are complicit by our silence. Now I know there are some do-gooders and some people who do well and I don't want to diminish that. That is wonderful and good. But sometimes we're do-gooders for our own sake because we want people to say, wow, what a great guy he is. How magnificent the way he serves the poor. Oh, let me just patronize him and give him a pat on the back and give him some money to help him, right? And then we feel good about ourselves that we're part of that work. <laughs> oh. The number of times I have been patronized by people who say, wow, we're so inspired by you. I said, if you were inspired, forgive me, but if you were truly inspired, follow my example as I follow Jesus Christ. In the words of Paul, that might sound proud to you. Well, forgive me if we're to be like Jesus, and I'm pointing to an example of Jesus, I still am a sinner. I struggle with many things. But I want to be just like Jesus. It's, it's what God's called me and you to be, to be shaped, to become just like Jesus. What did Jesus do? Who were the people who Jesus hung out with? The woman at the well who you know, had had five husbands and was with another, whatever it was, the tax collectors, the sinners, you know, the prostitutes. That's who Jesus hung out with. I wonder who we like to hang out with. I took counsel with myself, verse 7 says, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Speak the truth in love. When you speak truth, let's speak it in love. And I said to them, you are exacting interest. I told them the story straight. Each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We are as far as we are able. We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. We brought them back from Babylon, from Persian Empire. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. When we speak the truth in love, it makes people silent. If we speak the truth without love, often there's a big defense. That's how to know when you've spoken it in love. Now, I do give it that some people are so proud that no matter how much love you give them, there will be a response, a retort, a reason, an excuse, a get-out-of-jail-free card that gets played every time. Let's speak the truth in love to one another. When you see each other not acting or speaking out when injustice is seen, speak truth in love. When you observe it, when you see it in yourself, repent quickly. Let's speak truth in love to one another. So they were silent and couldn't even find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. 
Ought you not to walk in the fear of our Lord to prevent the taunts of the nations? You know, when the nations see the oppression in our nation and they say, but you're supposed to be 80% Christian, yet what are the Christians doing for those who are oppressed? And what are the Christians doing for the oppressor? You see, the best way to love both the oppressed and the oppressor is to the oppressor speak truth and love and call them to account and to the oppressed lift them out, up, out of oppression and serve them and encourage them and bandage their wounds. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says these three things we need to do when we see oppression. He says, first of all, bandage the wounds of the oppressed. Bandage the wounds of those who have been injured by that wagon of injustice. Number two, speak out on behalf of those who have been oppressed. And number three, stick a spoke in that wheel on the wagon of injustice so that you stop it altogether. And then when it comes, and then Christians say, oh no, we couldn't possibly do that. Let's just keep at peace with everybody. Don't point fingers at the government. Don't point fingers at those who are doing that. Oh no, we couldn't do that. Our lives are far too important and safe to do that. Pastor Yvonne, this flag, he's preaching at one church this morning. And I'm sorry my family couldn't be with me. Uh, we had one of our elders fall ill, and my family had to be there to cover the bases as well. And uh, he's a good friend. And to be able to stand with him and go to court several times and to call to account those who have poured significant injustice against him, that, that honestly took some courage. I was dead nervous. The day of the courts, the whole day I was saying, please don't put me in the front. Please don't put me in the front line, Lord. Please don't. And then I felt a tap on my shoulder from the Holy Spirit and said, you're it, it's your turn. Stuff is going a bit pear-shaped down there with some people who want to take it a different way. It's your turn to stand and call people to pray. I said, I can't do it, Lord. I can't do it. I can't, I can't. Chatted to a couple of other pastors. Hey, will you do it? I think we need to be the people in prayer. And I, you know, you he said, go for it. God's given you the call. Go for it. I had to stand and call people to pray in front of five odd thousand people. You don't know whether they're believers or not. And there's a rowdy gang there who's been drinking stuff. Dear friends, let's put ourselves in harm's way for the sake of others. Love not your lives even unto death. For we overcome by the blood of the Lamb what Jesus did on the cross for us and the word of our testimony, how we respond to what Jesus has done on the cross for us. Let's come back into Nehemiah. The thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants, we're also lending them money and grain. Let's abandon this exacting of interest. He too, Nehemiah, said, I'm also doing wrong. I'm lending them money too. These are our own sons and daughters. Let's stop that. Let's check our own hearts with humility and repent before God for our sins. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. That's not easy. You want to go and face an oppressor and correct their oppression? Most oppressors, I would say, are unbelievers. And they don't know God. 
so they don't necessarily have the same moral compass as you do so it's going to be tough to correct oppression and go before the oppressor but Isaiah calls us to do that bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's case what does it mean to bring justice Micah 6.8 says you know what is good O man O mortal you know what God requires of you to yeah, act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God the way to fulfill justice or act justly is in loving mercy offering forgiveness and kindness to the oppressor loving mercy offering Jesus as the solution to the oppressed problem offering solutions and care and support bandaging wounds and providing meals and teaching sharing and walking humbly with God not with a pride and an arrogance that's one nobody plead the widow's cause let me finish with Proverbs 31 8 and 9 speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves ensure justice for those being crushed yes yes speak up for the poor and helpless and see act see be part of the way that they get justice dear friends I would pray for you this morning that the Lord would work on our hearts and give us the courage of his Holy Spirit to have a holy rage about the things that are not of God in our city, in our nation, in our lives. They're both spiritual, they're physical, they're emotional. Dear friends, may God give you a holy vision of the areas where the walls have fallen down. You see, this was right in the middle of building the walls that the internal opposition came. They had built the wall probably to half its height. And this internal opposition came where the poor were speaking out against the wealthy because of the oppression. Dear friends, we often oppress by our silence. Father, I pray for my precious friends here today. We thank you for the merciful one, Jesus, the gracious one, who died in our place for our sins. Jesus, you lived a holy life. We've shared communion this morning, remembering your body broken and your blood shed for us. Would you give us a vision of the areas in your family that have broken down? Let us not treat with contempt. Let us not overlook. Let us not turn a blind eye to where there is oppression. Let us not side with the oppressor by staying silent, doing nothing. Lord, may we be a people who give ourselves on behalf of the poor, the needy, the alien, the widow, the stranger, the fatherless. May we be a people who have your heart, Lord. Let's take a moment just to lift our eyes and fix them on God and ask him, Ask him now in your own way, in your own words, for a revelation of where the walls have come down for you, particularly in this internal strife, this internal oppression of the family of God.
What area is God calling you to have a vision for, to build the wall there, to speak out and act, to serve and bless and encourage? Moment of, moment of quiet now as we ask God for ourselves. Help us, Lord. Would you help us, Lord, as we walk across this glass bridge to the vision you've given us? I pray that we would not fear or tremble the mighty calling that you've given us, but that we would walk with courage and strength, with grace and mercy, with perseverance and resilience for the glory of your name and for the good and joy of all peoples. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.